You're listening to 100 p.m. at Industry, the Product Conference, Episode 5. Our guest is Matt Althauser, Chief Revenue Officer at Amplitude Analytics. 100 p.m. is the web's fastest growing resource for product managers. If you'd like to learn more about our guests, visit 100productmanagers.com slash industry and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. If you love what we're doing, please head over to iTunes and leave us a great review to help others discover our show. Let's dive in and say hello to Matt Althauser. My name is Matt Althauser and I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Amplitude and that really just means that I lead the go-to-market team, so sales, marketing, and customer success. I, I checked you out, <laughs> knowing that we were going to be having this conversation, and um, you're like a real, you're a sales professional. You were with Optimizely for a few years, you're head of sales there, you built out their European sales division, yeah. it's like uh, you know this business. We're, I'm learning this business, yeah, I think all of us still are. It's pretty early days in SaaS still, and B2B SaaS in general. But yeah, we're getting a lot of learnings and it's pretty fun along the way. So I consult a lot of software companies mm -hmm. and, you know, the biggest challenge I think for any software company and the biggest desire is growth. Everyone wants to get those customers and grow those customers. And I think there's a lot of tension between should I build up a sales team? Is that even the right thing for me to do versus you know, content marketing strategies or influencer marketing or other sort of acquisition methods that don't really involve human bodies. Right. What are your thoughts on the necessity for sales teams in, in SaaS? When should you think about building them? Yeah, I think it really comes back to who your target customer is and who you're building for. We see this a lot where you have a founder who's very product-centric, which is amazing. That's, I think, what you want at the end of the day. And then what they're trying to do is they're trying to distribute that product in a way that doesn't actually fit the customer or the size of the contract they're actually going after. So that usually drives a lot of it. When I first joined Optimize, it was interesting. The product at the time was completely self-serve. They had launched the product in October 2010, and I joined in June of 2011. And so it was really just a six or seven person company at the time. And it was interesting because the first goal when I got there was to prove that they needed salespeople. And so that process was really, really interesting. And at the end of the day, we found a great way forward. But it's, it's about understanding who you're going after and the offering that you're trying to build for that customer. There's a, a sound bite that's been shared. I, I can't remember if it was Brian from Airbnb says, don't hire for any job that you don't already do yourself, which is, I think, good advice yeah. for startups in the context of you have to kind of go through the process and learn it. Yeah. And so I'm curious, especially given the experience you shared with Optimizely, yeah. they had a self-serve model. They knew that they had language and, and kind of a funnel that got people there. Yeah. Did you have to kind of figure out the script and the offer and you know, how much work was there in going from a self-serve model that's working to creating a sales plan that works? Yeah, I mean, it was really about finding repeatability from some early wins. So Dan and Pete, founders of Optimizely, like a lot of founders, were kind of doing everything at the time. And so when I came in, they had had a few, they actually had some early consulting gigs, 
where they knew that they could kind of get a higher price point, but it was the repeatability that I was really coming in to demonstrate. And so there was a little bit of a framework there. And so we really tried to just productize that and make that something that we as a company felt comfortable filling on in a repeated fashion and actually had the team to do. So yeah, so we came in and I think we started, you know, just seeing with 2000 bucks a month, could we get any company out there to pay that amount of money? And then we started calling into a bunch of different companies and actually cold calling in and seeing, hey, is this a price point that you would pay for optimizing with these services for a 12-month agreement? And you know, slowly we started to build that. And within pretty short order, that revenue started to become the bulk of you know, the company's revenue. So uh, there was a markedly different price point. We had the self-serve product, which was that you could start at $19, $79, or $399. And then we were coming in at a $2,000 price point. And yeah, it was interesting, but you saw early on how it would really start to catch on. How does one go about building out that sales process, right? So if, yeah. if I'm higher number one, kind of like you were, uh-huh. there's no precedent, there's no template, there's no here's how we do it. Right. Your job is to figure out how to create that repeatable sales process. Can you just like talk us through a little bit of the ingredients that that goes into that? Yeah, well, sales is a numbers game, like a lot of things out there. Again, it goes back to that target customer. So first thing, what we did back then, we actually found a database of digital analytics professionals. um, And there was about 2,000 folks in there that we could reach out to. We really just started, or I should say, we actually had this little phone booth in the office. And I locked myself in there for about two months. And I think we made about 1,300 cold calls in that time period. And, you know, through that process, it's basically a lot like the um, process for a product manager where they're interviewing a bunch of people and eventually coming out with a repeatable product. Same sort of concept with sales. You need a big swath of interviews because you're probably only going to convert 1% to 2% of those people into contracts. But within about 90 days, we had actually closed enough business to pay back my contract. For the year, and so that's when we do, you know, and that's sort of the kernel. And then you, what you do with that is you have an overall sale, and you say, you know, it took us a hundred cold calls or whatever it might be to get into a meeting, and from that we got ten meetings, and then from that we got one contract or whatever it might be, and then you can actually start parsing out the different jobs to be done within that framework. So now it's very common that people have SDRs, and so they really are getting those meetings. And you have the account executives that run the second half of the process. And then, you know, from there, you start building a bit more complexity into your sales process. All right. So 1,300 cold calls. Mm-hmm. There, I'm sure you're well aware there is a very healthy dialogue right now about are cold calls dead or are cold calls not dead? What's your personal take on it? I actually was picking up the phone and calling then. And I think... I don't think that's dead. It's a part of an outbound process. So what you want to do if you're going after new accounts in a cold, quote-unquote, outbound fashion, meaning they haven't come inbound to you, what you want to do is you want to construct a cadence or a follow-up methodology so that you might reach out with an email first or with a call first, whatever makes sense to what you're trying to accomplish. And then it's really about the follow-up after that. You know, most salespeople don't, follow up after the third try. But what we see is it's really around the sixth or seventh try when you start seeing success and touch points at that process. So it's more about 
running people through a consistent outbound process, whatever that might be, if that's calling in, emailing, a bunch of different things. And I think the biggest thing in all of it is as a salesperson, you really have to do your homework and be convicted that you're really going to be helping that customer that you're reaching out to. So when is it time for salesperson number two? It's tough because salesperson number two can actually come very quickly, especially if you subscribe to the idea of focus. So what we did was we actually brought on Julio, who was the first hire that we made there. He's now gone on to have a really successful sales career, which is awesome. And he came in actually as an intern to do that SDR work and then grew super fast. So what again, it's, it's how much, how many jobs do you need to accomplish to actually get the output you want? And so if you have a ton of outbound calls that need to happen and you're doing a bunch of demos at the same time, well, that's really two separate work streams and separating those sooner than later is a good thing. The other thing that can be a driver of it is really the contract value that you're selling at. If you're able to get, they kind of say the magic number is around $20,000 a year. If you're under that, it's pretty hard to justify outbound human selling. And if you're over that, you know, roughly it will make sense for you over the long run. And this is really big, you know, rough rule of thumb. I don't know what people's margins on the products are and things like that. But when you really bake in the cost of sale and, and the commissions and all that stuff, you kind of want to be north of, of that number there. Yes. Cautionary tale listeners, don't take Matt's exact uh, answers here and then come back and blame us for how come my sales plan didn't work. <laughs> There's another expression, which is don't build what you can make, build what you can sell. And a lot of this, we talk a lot about this in, in my product class the challenge of creating a valuable product. I mean, that's at the core of product management. And again, a lot of where that tension shows up is somebody builds something that maybe never should have been built to begin with. And then they hire a guy like you Mm -hmm. to go and sell it. Mm -hmm. And then it's not saleable. It's Mm -hmm. not saleable in its current form. So, you know, you do what you do well, which is you make the sale, yep. you promise the customer X, you promise the customer Y, and, and you come back. So given that that's the reality of what it takes to, to get the sale done sometimes, yeah. what would you say to product managers kind of in reverse about how to make your, like, because then they're mad at you. They're mm-hmm. like, why did you promise them that? We don't have the resources for that right. feature. Right. How do you start to r- repair that tension between those teams? Well, there's two phases to this. There's initial product market fit. And then I think something that enough people don't actually talk about is once you have product market fit and things are going well, how do I roll out additional products on top of what I've already done? So there's sort of two phases there. The first one, this is tough, but at the end of the day, an early salesperson's job is to bring meetings to the company for feedback on sales and sales process. That's really the job of that first salesperson. We actually had a ton of meetings early on where we would still involve the founders. It wasn't that I was going out and just selling by myself. At the time, I, I barely knew what JavaScript was. Before that, I had a company just doing mattress recycling. So I was an expert in the space by no means at all. And so bringing in Dan and Pete at the time to sort of be our sales engineer and really taking the sales across the line and talking more about that visionary alignment with the prospect. That ultimately is what helped us early on in those deals. Once you kind of have that repeatability and both parties, sales and product, feel comfortable that, hey, we've got something repeatable here. We feel good about it. 
then it's in the you know the interest of the company to hold the sales team accountable to specific outcomes based on metrics that you've determined together. This is really early sales, um, but at the end of the day, good salespeople know that they need to get contracts across the line you know, to keep their jobs and, and to be helpful to the company. And so that's a healthy tension, actually. Um, so that's the first one. That's just getting things off the ground. The second phase, which I talked about, was around, okay, now we've got this thing going. And if you know um, SaaS, at least, what's really important is that you provide more value to customers over time. And what's really tough is you run into these situations where the product organization, what they want to do is get feedback from existing customers over and over and over again. And there's this interesting tension because the go-to-market team is saying, wait, 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 we need to kind of sell to them more things over time. We can't be doing customer development all the time, all the time with all of our customers. So the way that we've approached that, and the way a lot of companies approach this as they start to perfect that balance between the two teams, and actually Justin, the VP of product over at our company, and Sandia, who leads uh, product marketing over there, they've really spearheaded this and done a great job, is they create the different phases for the rollout of a product. And we make those very public to the entire company. And it starts at alpha. And this is really just where product and engineering are storytelling and, and getting involved and prototyping with maybe some limited uh, resources from customer success to maybe get people in a super early alpha phase trial of the product. Then once we get out of that phase, we run into this beta phase. Um, and that's where we're actually identifying a few customers and running a beta process with them. We're not discussing you know, specifics of what we're, we're rolling out from what it would cost and all that stuff, we're still learning. And then from there, we go into a release phase. That's when we train the sales team, get them up to speed, and really start thinking about how we will price this new feature or product or whatever it might be. And then finally, we actually get into launch, and that's where marketing comes in, and we can push that forward. And so you can see, just to solve this seemingly simple tension, you really have to drive a lot of clarity between the organizations when you're at scale. So it's important to really think through how am I being thoughtful about rolling these products out and how am I enabling the different teams across the company to, to find success within that new uh, product or product space. Yeah, I mean, that's such a fantastic insight. I think what I heard from that early stage piece is the product team, and maybe the product team is the founders in, in that case, or it's very, very close. The product team just has to be really, really okay with accepting that the market is there to say, this is what you need. So if you've got too much ego around what is the product, you're going to kind of probably fail right there because you're not listening to what the customers are saying in order yeah. to, to make it valuable. But this point that you made about product managers always wanting to do customer development mm -hmm. and sales sort of being like, no, no, no. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? What is the threat or the danger in your opinion of that too much customer development? Is that, is that a danger? There is nothing better than product teams wanting to engage with customers and learn from them. It's more around competing interests. So oftentimes if we get our best customers into a beta or alpha stage, then you know, we, we feel, you know, it's part of giving them that product then that they've helped us build. Whereas, you know, in sales, you're like, okay, we have to grow these accounts over time. So how do we find that balance? Right. Okay. So, so I think what I'm hearing is 
recognize that some customers make better candidates exactly. for for that customer development process and, yeah. and others are like, they haven't realized full value yet. So yeah. let's be careful how much we're mining them for, for value. Exactly. The other thing that's actually the more important thing is you don't want your best clients to always see you making the sausage. It's kind of a crazy image in your head, but if you think about the sausage making process, that's pretty ugly. Um, what you want is just to present a finished product to customers, especially your most key customers. And so sometimes that's another risk. We've, I've seen that also at my previous company where we were doing customer development and people saw the stuff we were working on. It wasn't aligned with where they wanted us to go as a company. And then they thought more about potentially churning off of the product. Right. So you actually introduce risk to these relationships that it's not intentional by either party, um, but sometimes it can be perceived that way. What is the motivation typically for customers to be involved? Because, you know, especially if you're thinking about enterprise clients yeah. where there is, I mean, this comes up when we talk about being lean in the enterprise and it's always challenging because sure. MVP becomes a harder and harder concept to, to get buy-in for. When I'm an enterprise client, What's my motivation in saying, yeah, like, let's definitely be part of your alpha. Yeah, let's definitely try a bunch of new features. Why do I want that? Well, we talk a lot about one of our core operating principles at Amplitude is solving customer pain. So as long as you are abiding by that general concept and you're really solving pain and adding value to that customer, most of the times we find that they're super excited to get involved. Why exactly they do that? Well, they've bought, in our case, we're their, their product analytics platform. And the more they can understand their users and products, the better they do as a business. So we're very aligned with them there. And the more that they align with these analyses or future capabilities that they want to get done, then they can participate, give us feedback, and then have that capability with their customers over time. So I think it's about really solving customer pain and being very, very aligned with what that specific account wants to accomplish and then only making sure they're involved in those betas versus other betas or alphas that you might have cooking. Yeah, I love that answer. In fact, it reminds me of a great salesperson that I knew who talked about going back to the cold calling piece and generally the fear around reaching out to clients and then saying, I don't worry about that because I know that I have something valuable for this person. Mm -hmm. And my job is just to help them to see that. And it's, it sounds like it's a little bit of a similar thing where it's my job is just to make your circumstances better. And so everything that I'm doing is really in service of that kind of mission. Well, that's the best part about SaaS in general is that you, you get judged as a go-to-market team or as a company and a product team every time that customer is up for renewal. And they can vote. They can either renew and continue to say, yes, you are providing value to our business. Or they can churn at that point and leave and say, nope, you guys didn't cut it. And I think there's a lot of power to the customer in that world. So, Cool. All right. So tell our listeners, what is Amplitude? Is it a new company? Is it not a new company? Yeah. Where are you at in the life cycle? So Amplitude was founded by two MIT grads, Spencer and Curtis. Um, they've been phenomenal. They've just been really good leaders. But really, the company started out of two founders doing something completely different. They actually started with a mobile app called Sonalite, and they were in Y Combinator. 
and it was a voice recognition application so that people could talk to their phone while they were driving um, without getting hurt. And this was really pre-Siri. So they started building this and they launched it and they saw this initial uptake from press, but then they didn't see customers sticking around. And so they started building analytics to try to understand how can we retain our users? How can we understand their user behavior? And then they started looking at the cohort of folks in their YC group and all of them were having similar problems. And so they really started to focus in on not the application, but the infrastructure to support the application and started building what we know today as Amplitude. So the product was really launched in 2014. And yeah, we've been off to the races since then. So it's been really successful. We've got thousands of companies that are using the, the platform. There's a free version and then a paid enterprise version. And we now have about 100 people in the company and just closed our Series C uh, this spring. So there are so many analytics platforms. I'm sure you're well aware yeah. of your competitive landscape. And, and yeah. I'm curious, just to go back to the founders in that problem-solving moment, uh -huh. why they felt that there wasn't already a solution that could give them the data that they were looking for. So our company has a really firm belief that demographic information is just not enough. Um, and so it's really about understanding user behavior. And that platform did not exist at the time. And it's really about, really at the end of the day, understanding what we call behavioral cohorts. And behavioral cohorts is grouping people not based on which marketing campaign they came from. A lot of companies are out there doing that today. So you can go and get Google Analytics, a bunch of different companies out there. What we're focused on is once a user is actually acquired and, and actively participating within the product, that's the behavior we want to understand. And so we're really focused on that. So if you think about a world, you know, in 2005, where you had very linear websites, you know, it was people would come to the website, they'd fill something out, and then they'd get something in the mail a few weeks later. It was a very typical marketing funnel. Well, now today you have a completely different setup with digital products. You have people coming into a mobile application or a SaaS application and being able to go any which way. And that complexity is, is really needs a different type of, of analytics platform to support it. We actually even have customers that do virtual reality with our platform. So. All right. Well, just to put you on the spot a little bit here, what you're describing sounds a lot like what Mixpanel offers to folks. Sure. So help me to understand why would I choose Amplitude instead of Mixpanel? Yeah. So first thing, we are always a fan of doing any type of analytics out there. And I don't talk a lot about competitors. That's not something I'm excited about. But for us, it really comes back to that behavioral capability around really understanding user behavior and being able to group users into what they've done, not necessarily just who they are. And we feel like we have the platform in the entire space that is the easiest to use and most advanced. That's why a lot of people come to Amplitude. And yeah, but at the end of the day, if, if you're able to use any sort of analytics to better understand user behavior, that, that's a good one. That's a very noble answer. You're saying, just use analytics. That's my first concern. And then, if you want, choose Amplitude. Yeah, exactly. All right, take, take me through this. So let's kind of just create a, a mock use case here. I've got a SaaS platform. You know, it's been in market for one or two years We've got some folks that are using it, and we've never integrated a tool like Amplitude before. Uh -huh. I hear this podcast, 
I'm like, this Matt guy sounds like a good guy. I want to give this tool a try. So then what happens? Like, what are sort of the, the basic steps that I'm taking? I don't mean like the actual buttons that I click, but how do I sort of get up and running with Amplitude and start realizing the value from that? Yeah, so we have actually a self-serve free product that you can try out anytime you want at Amplitude.com. So go ahead, try it out. Um, you would integrate it very similarly to other products on the market, um, like a Google Analytics. You just go through and tag your site um, with the different things that you want to track, and you're up and running. Cool. You guys are here. You're sponsoring industry. You've got a really cool booth upstairs. In fact, we're going to get some mimosas very shortly, yeah, I yeah. understand. You also have this incredible, it's called the, the product playbook or the retention playbook. It's like 300 pages of uh, amazing information for product teams. Yeah. What you give away? Where, where do people get it? Productanalyticsplaybook.com. Okay. It's only 155 pages. <laughs> you should maybe think about sales. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm seeing it from the, you know, everyone, this is the era of everybody doing an ebook, and then the ebook is like three pages long. Right. I and mean, this is like proper research went into this. It's, yeah. it's a really quality output. Talk to us, like give us the highlights of, you know, it's called retention. Yeah. What about retention? You know, what's your perspective on it or, or the perspective of Amplitude about, obviously we know retention is important. Yeah. Retention is the most important metric for a lot of products that no product teams are probably thinking about enough. There's a few parts of retention. The first is just defining and understanding what it means to your product. And so there's different intervals that you want to be measuring based on the type of product you might have. So if you're a SaaS product, you might not care if someone comes back every single day and re-engages with your product, but you might care a lot if they perform a specific action within the last month. And being clear about what those things are is really helpful to driving alignment between different teams and different goals for your product organization. This book is all about helping people identify the tactical inputs to developing a broader strategy towards making a better product at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm taking mine home. (laughs) All right, Matt, just a couple questions for you. We do a segment on the show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And and typically it's product managers offering advice to product managers. But given that you've got all of this expertise in that sales side, I'd love to, to skew it a little bit and ask you first and foremost, what advice can you offer to product teams for creating better relationships with sales? I'm very, very lucky to work with Justin. He's our VP of product. He's phenomenal. And what we try to do between go-to-market and product is share metrics. And I, I mean that by sharing ownership of metrics and really forcing that collaboration and alignment. So his product metric, his most important metric that he's driving towards is weekly active couriers within our platform. And he actually has a goal to drive that up within a given quarter. Now, in B2B, he's dependent on us to bring in new customers, but we're dependent on him to engage our existing customers and really drive that number up. The reason he chose that number actually was more go-to-market driven. That number has a very, very high correlation score with people renewing and upselling within our product. And so we're very aligned there. We're also very aligned with the customer because... The customer, really, if you think about it, we're an analytics platform. They're asking more questions, getting more value out of the platform. And so we all, it's, it's this great triangle of alignment between product, the customer, and go-to-market. 
And we actually, even down to the customer success team, help drive that number up for them as well. Okay. Shared metrics, shared understanding, shared coffee and pizza. Everything. Probably. Share it all. <laughs> Share it Just all. Just not the germ. <laughs> for sure. All right. What about the, the reverse side of that? Where have you seen either within the sales team or within the relationships between sales and product, what are the yeah. common pitfalls that, that people can potentially avoid based on your expert advice here today? I think one of the biggest, biggest things for companies at scale, when you are launching new products or extensions or whatever it might be to your existing platform, be very, very thoughtful about building product for the same buyer. I can't really stress this enough, but what we see oftentimes is a company will get into a space and they say, okay, we're in the marketing space and marketing, you know, now today there's mobile marketers, there's web marketers, there's all types of marketers. You can imagine that all types of those personas have different budgets. They buy differently. They think differently about product, at least unless you're going to launch a full new product, a product line that's completely separate from everything else. And you have a full go-to-market team to support that. Um, it's very hard for go-to-market teams to support in quick fashion if you start changing who that person is that they need to talk to within an organization. So don't forget about who your actual customer is. Target customer, I can't say it enough. Alignment between go-to-market and product on who you are building for and who you are selling to and ultimately who you're making more successful. That is the most important thing that can drive that alignment and clarity between the teams. You said earlier in our conversation that before you joined the team at Optimizely some number of years ago, you were coming from a completely different industry. <laughs> and now you've been in this SaaS world for seven or eight years, something uh-huh. like that. So obviously you like it. Yeah. What is it about digital product or internet products that gets you so excited? Well, my, my brother's a product manager at Amazon, and so we talk about it a lot between each other and... What I love about this space right now is that it's wide open. You know, you can build something tomorrow that is better than a product that's been around for 20 years, and you can completely upend a space or an industry in a matter of years. And that's really, really interesting. And that pace of change is great from, you know, being the David, um, but it's also exciting for the Goliaths out there because they know they have to innovate as well. And so everyone is pushing to figure out how can we build better products. And what's interesting is everyone might be competing from a company perspective, but the real beneficiary is the consumers. They are through this uh, immense competition and space. They're getting better and better services and products throughout. So it's, it's good for everyone. And as we push each other to you know, build better and better things, customers are happier and happier along the way. Love it. Matt Altazer, the company is Amplitude Analytics. Where do we find it online? Amplitude.com. Amplitude.com. Check it out. Great platform. Thanks so much for being part of our show. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. 
We'll be back next week with an all new episode.